Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of Acts, chapter 17, and verse 22. Acts 17, 22, for our message from God's Word this morning. Acts 17, 22 is located on page 1173. At least it is in the church Bible. This morning's date is February 5th, 2023. Our text will be in Acts 17.22, right on down to the end of the chapter in verse 34. And the title of this morning's message is Paul's Answer to superstition. The Apostle Paul's answer to superstition. And we begin with the story of a man who bought a really expensive car. And he didn't want anything to happen to it. So, being a superstitious man, he asked a priest, a rabbi, and a Muslim cleric to bless the car. The Muslim prayed over the car. The priest sprinkled holy water on it, and the rabbi cut off the end of the tailpipe. Well, speaking of being superstitious, here in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul has just been asked to speak on Mars Hill, the place in Athens where all the Greek philosophers would get together to talk about philosophy and religion. And Paul began his message in verse 22, where it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. (laughs) Now, to begin with here, it looks like Paul is starting out his message by insulting these Athenians. I mean, how would you like to be called too superstitious? But, one of the definitions of the word superstitious is excessively devoted. And you know that's the meaning here because of what Paul says in the next verse of our text in verse 23. Let me flip on my cooling device and then we'll consider verse 23 together. Paul says you're too superstitious, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions, 
I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Can you see the connection between telling them they were excessively devoted and seeing their devotions? Well, that word devotions there is a reference to how devoted they were to their graven images, to their idols. If you look back in your Bible earlier in this chapter at the end of verse 16, you'll see that the city of Athens was wholly given to idolatry. Last week we talked about how history says that Athens had 30,000 idols. So here in verse 23 in our text, Paul was telling the Athenians that he'd been walking past their idols when he found this altar to the unknown God. And an altar was the thing that pagans would park, (laughs) for lack of a better word, right in front of their idols in order to have something to sacrifice to their idols uh, on, I should say. And uh, we know that that's what idols were because your first reference says there in Ezekiel 16. And where's mine? I don't have mine. Where'd my sheep go? Who's going to sacrifice theirs? (laughs) Don't worry about that. We'll get that later. In Ezekiel chapter 6. And verse 13, it says, Their altars, the place where they did offer sweet savor to all their idols. So you can see that that's what Paul found there. But the thing about the altar that Paul came across that day is that it wasn't parked in front of an idol. Because that altar was dedicated to the unknown God. So it was parked in front of nothing. And that's what Paul meant when he said they were excessively devoted. Because he was telling them, you guys have 30,000 gods, but you're afraid there's a god that you don't know about yet. So you built an altar to him so to make sure you cover all the bases. <laughs> so Paul says, let me tell you about this god that you admit you don't know. And the reason he picked that way to approach them is that he wanted to avoid 
what happened to Socrates. The Greeks executed Socrates for trying to introduce a new God to the Greeks. So Paul here is saying, I'm not introducing a new God here. I'm telling you about the unknown God that you're already worshiping. Yeah, pretty clever, huh? And he wasn't insulting them here either when he said that they worshipped him ignorantly. Because that word ignorant just means to be unaware of something. Like when Isaiah prayed in your next reference in Isaiah 63.16, Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us. Well, it says that Abraham was ignorant of Isaiah and Isaiah's people in Israel. But the reason was because Abraham was dead. (laughs) And he couldn't see the people of Israel from his place in paradise. So it wasn't insulting to Abraham to say that he was ignorant of the Jews. And it wasn't insulting for Paul to say that the Athenians were ignorant of the God that they just didn't know about yet. And the first thing Paul tells these Gentiles about God is something that we read about in the next verse in our text, in verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein Seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, because he made all things therein, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Now, there's a reason that Paul is starting his message by taking these Gentiles back to Genesis 1-1, where it says that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You see, after God created the heaven and the earth, he spent the next 2,000 years trying to get the Gentile nations of the world to worship him. But, as Paul said in Romans 1 and verse 21, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. So finally, in Genesis 12, God gave up on the Gentile nations and he made a new nation out of Abraham, the nation Israel. So in taking these Athenians back to creation, Paul was taking them back to their roots so that he could retrace their steps and show them where they went wrong. It's kind of like what Stephen did after the Jews crucified the Lord Jesus. 
He told them in his message, beginning in Acts 7 and verse 2, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, listen up. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. Stephen took the Jews back to their roots in Abraham so that he could retrace their steps and show them where they went wrong. If you know that passage, you know he went on to remind them how their forefathers had rejected Joseph and then Moses, then they rejected all of the prophets, and then finally they rejected Christ. And that's what Paul plans to do with these Gentiles here on Mars Hill. Retrace their steps and show them where they went wrong. He starts in that verse we just read there in verse 24 when he said that God dwelleth not in temples made with hands. You see... That was the first place where ancient men went wrong when it came to worshiping God. Wherever men lived on the face of the earth, folks, in ancient times, they'd build God a local temple to live in. But God does not need a house to live in. He doesn't need a house to stay warm and dry like we do. So he never asked anybody to build him a house. Not even the Jews. Look at your next reference. When David decided to build God a temple, what did God tell him in 2 Samuel 7, verses 5 5 and 7? Shalt thou, David, build me a house for me to dwell in? In all the places wherein I have walked, with all the children of Israel, spake I a word, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? God never asked anybody to build him a temple. But, if you ask Google what the oldest temple in the world is, you'll see that it's in Turkey, And it was built, they say anyway, 11,000 years ago. Now, as Bible believers, we know that date is wrong. The Bible says that the world's only 6,000 years old. Science, Science dates things we all learned in school using carbon dating, right? And folks... Carbon dating is only good as far back as Noah's flood. (laughs) It's no good when it comes to things before Noah's flood. But the point is, all the ancient temples you'll find around the world show that it didn't take men very long to start building God temples to live in. So that's the first place where ancient men went wrong. Then, Paul tells them about the the second place they went wrong in verse 25, back in your Bible again. 
Neither is God worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Now, now worshipping God with men's hands means worshipping him with idols. God said in Isaiah 2 and verse 8 that uh, their land is full of idols and he calls those idols the works of men's hands. So Paul's telling the Athenians here that God can't be worshipped with idols. But ancient men made plenty of idols just like they made plenty of temples. Ask Siri where the oldest idol in the world is located and she'll tell you that it's in Russia where there's an idol, a graven image they say is 12,000 years old. (laughs) Well, it's not. But again, the point is that after ancient men began building God temples to live in, it didn't take them long to start thinking that God needed an image of himself to put in temples because they figured God needed something to represent him in their temples. As though God needed anything, as Paul says. But as Paul also says there in verse 25, God is a giver, not a needer. He giveth to all life and breath and all things. Well, hey, if God can give all things, that means all things are his to give, right? What do you give the God who has everything? It sounds like a Christmas problem, doesn't it? But Paul says there in verse 25 that the first thing God gives us is life. Google that question. The question of how did life begin, if you want some laughs. (laughs) Because science says that life began when two cells bumped into each other one day and merged and then kept duplicating for some unexplained reason. But they can't tell you who made the two cells in the first place or why they felt the urge to merge. (laughs) I mean, can't you just picture it? One of those cells looks at the other and says... You're the cutest cell that I ever did see. I sure would be delighted with your company. Come on and do the cell house rock with me. Oh, come on, it's fun. (laughs) But I mean, I made fun of it because if you believe that's how life got started, I got a bridge I want to sell you. Us how life began when he says that God gave us life and breath. He's quoting your next reference there in Genesis 2-7. God formed man of the dust of the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And when that happened, God gave us life. And he gave us all things when he created the world and all things in it. Paul says he gives us richly all things to enjoy, right? When he created the world and all things in it and made Adam king of the world, he gave him all to Adam. And speaking of how God made us, verse 26, the next verse in your text says that God has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Now, why would, why would Paul bother to tell the Athenians there that God made us all of one blood back in the Garden of Eden? I think that it was because not long after the Garden of Eden, Satan came along and muddled things up and made men into two kinds of blood. What does it say in Genesis 6, 1-4? You know these verses. When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And there were giants in the earth in those days. Those sons of God we've seen from past studies were fallen angels who mated with women to to try to pollute the seed of men to make sure that Messiah would be born a demonic mutant. But as it says in Genesis 6, 8, 9, but Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. He wasn't perfect in his conduct because nobody's perfect. But he was perfect in his generations. He and his family did not mingle with those fallen angels. They just said no. But the rest of the world said yes. And that made men of two kinds of blood. Human blood and half-human, half-demon blood, giant blood. But in verse 26, I think Paul's talking about how God made all men one blood again by killing off those giants with the flood so that Messiah could be born pure. But listen, letting that happen in the first place was where ancient men went wrong for the third time. See, the women should have just said no, and the men should have stood by and not allow, shouldn't have stood by and allowed it. Now listen, these Athenians, they would have been able to figure out what Paul was getting at, even though Luke maybe didn't tell you every word he spoke. And I say that because, remember Greek mythology? Hey folks, 
their Greek gods were always sleeping with women and having children with them and producing what the dictionary calls demigods, half God, half man. So as Paul was intimating this and maybe even going into detail about this, he wouldn't have lost the Athenians with that story. Now, next, after God made man of one blood again, after the flood, verse 26 goes on to say that he determined the times before appointed. And that word times in the Bible, go home and look that word up. It has to do with what Daniel said about God in Daniel 2.21. We're talking about God. It says he changeth the times. Say, so what does he mean by that? He changes the times by removing kings and setting up kings. So what I think he's talking about is after the flood, uh, when God made men of one blood again, a new king of the world had to be appointed, right? And it wasn't Jack on the Titanic in the bow there. It was Noah when he stepped off the ark. He was king of the world. And all men came from his blood. And you know what? Paul would not have lost the Athenians with that story either. Because, I didn't know this, maybe you did, but according to Greek mythology, there came a day when Zeus decided to flood the world. So a demigod named Deucalion built an ark. And him and his wife survived and then repopulated the earth. And all men came from his blood. So again, he wouldn't have lost the Athenians with those details either. I can just see the Athenians saying, okay, Paul, we're with you so far. As long as you don't start talking about anything crazy like resurrection from the dead, which <laughs> we know he does later on in this passage. But they're with him so far. But here, this leads us to ancient man's fourth mistake. The fourth place where they went wrong. Because after Noah stepped off of that ark, it says in Genesis 9... And verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. Let me ask you, is that what Noah's descendants did? Did they spread out over all the face of the earth and replenish the earth? No! A lousy few chapters later, it says in Genesis 11, 1 and 4, the whole earth was of one language. And they said to one another, Go to, let's build us a city and a tower, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. They didn't want to spread out and replenish the earth. They wanted to hunker down and build a city 
and a tower in one single location. So, so what did the members of the Trinity decide to do about that in your next reference in Genesis 11, 6-9? The Lord said, Let us go down, talking to the other members of the Trinity, let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. Therefore is the name of it called Babel. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the whole earth. When they refused to do what God said, when they refused to scatter abroad upon the face of the earth, God made them scatter abroad by confusing their languages. Hey folks, you can't build a tower if you ask the guy next to you to hand you a hammer and he hands you a saw. You can't build a tower or a city or anything like that, right? So, they all scattered like God wanted to do. And then, when they got around the planet, they established nations. That's why Paul mentions nations a moment ago there in verse 26. Did you know that there were no nations on the planet until God scattered man upon the face of the earth after the Tower of Babel? There wasn't any need of nations until God made Noah the king of the world and established human government with him. A nation needs government. And God gave it to them when they established, knowing they would establish those nations. And it's, it's the, the, the new existence of these nations that explains What Paul said at the end of verse 26 there, when it says that that God determined the bounds of their habitation. (laughs) Now you want to talk about a verse where there's a lot of goofy ideas about it. Uh, I've heard quite a few, including the idea that, you know, men really shouldn't have gone to the moon because God set the, the bounds of their habitation here on earth. So we got no business going up there. The real way that he set the bounds of our habitation was by dividing our languages. If you make it so men can't communicate, uh, they settle in different areas. And the boundaries set themselves. They set themselves when men set up borders around their nation. And Checkpoint Charlie, some of you remember Checkpoint Charlie between East and West Berlin. And Paul tells us why God set the bounds of our habitations in nations in verse 27 in your Bible. It says he did that, that they should seek the Lord. If haply they might feel after the Lord and find him. Though he be not far from every one of us. God separated men to get them to seek him. 
You see, God knows that when men live together in towns and cities, it makes them stop trying to seek Him. You say, well, how do you know that? <laughs> well, in your next reference, in Genesis eleven four to 6 when ancient men said, let's build a city and a tower, the Lord said, now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Well, what did he think they'd imagine to do if they stayed together and lived together instead of spreading out? We don't have to guess, folks. Because after God stopped them from building that city at the Tower of Babel, they spread out and in their nations built cities. And then look what happened in Romans 1, 21 and 23. When they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, but became vain in their what? Their imaginations. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible men. Once they started grouping together in cities, they stopped seeking the Lord because they decided they were gods. When men live together, folks, they start telling each other how smart they are. So they must be the real gods. And so let's build, build idols to ourselves. And they did. You know those Greek statues that are so famous of people? You know? They were idols, folks. Well, I'd call that vain, wouldn't you? Thinking you're God? They became vain in their imaginations, is what it says. God made man in his image, and man decided to return the favor, right? To make God in their image. Now, that verse also says, if they had just stayed, instead, they would have sought the Lord instead by feeling after him. Well, what kind of man has to feel after someone when they're looking for him? Or, in case you didn't hear it on the tape, a blind man or a man who's in darkness. Well, doesn't the Bible describe unsaved men as both being blind and in darkness? So they have to feel after the Lord in their darkness, in their blindness. But I can tell you, folks, you got a better chance of finding God by feeling after Him in the dark than if your neighbor's telling Him you don't have to seek God because you're God. Right? Especially because, as Paul says, He isn't very far from any one of us. What does uh, David say about that in Psalm 139, 7-10? He's praying, he says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? I ascend up into heaven, 
thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me. Well, I'd call that being not far from every one of us, wouldn't you? But don't forget what you learned about the Greek gods in school. The Greeks believed that all the gods lived far away on Mount Olympus, the highest mountain in Greece. And they only came down here to earth when they felt like slumming it, I guess. They thought the gods were, were so far off they needed to make images of the gods to bring them up close and personal. And then suddenly there's this Paul guy telling them that the unknown god they worship was close at hand. And they didn't need an idol to bring him up close and personal. And to prove what he was talking about, to prove that he was talking about their unknown God, Paul quotes some of their known poets. Look at, look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now, first of all, what does Paul mean when he says, in God we live and move and have our being? Well, let's try to simplify it. You wouldn't have any being unless God created you, right? And since he created you, you not only live and have your being, you can also move around. <laughs> As their own poets said, now, here I have to remind you, I have to pause to remind you that Paul quoted those unsaved poets just like I do when I quote the poets who write songs. That's who write so the lyrics to songs. They all rhyme, you know, they're poets. Now, I know people say that oh, Paul only quoted unsaved poets because he was talking to unsaved men. But Paul quoted another unsaved man in talking to a saved man in Titus 1.12. He told Titus about the Cretans. A prophet of their own said, the Cretans are always liars. And he's talking to a saved man there. So I'm not going to be labored. If you don't think preachers should quote anybody except believers, we'll just agree to disagree. <laughs> but I find it tends to wake people up if, if I put them to sleep. So I, that's why I do it. But to get back to Paul's point here, God did create us. But he also created rocks and a whole lot of other things that don't live or move around, right? You see... We're a special kind of God's creation because that verse says we're his offspring. And I know that's one of the verses that people use to say, well, we're, we're all children of God. It doesn't matter what you believe about God because we're all his children anyway. But 
Look what Paul says about that in Galatians 3.26. Paul says you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Well, there he makes it clear that it does matter what you believe about God, doesn't he? His point here is that we're all God's offspring by virtue of creation. That's the context. He's been talking about creation. When the Lord was born, uh, in Luke 23 and 38, Luke gives you the Lord's family tree. Jesus, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, and then it goes down for the next 15 verses and says, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Adam was the son of God by virtue of creation. Just like those fallen angels we talked about were called the sons of God by virtue of their creation. They fell later. But if we're all the offspring of Adam, like that verse says, then we're all the offspring of God too. Because he was the offspring of God. But here's the thing. Creation can only give you the physical kind of life. If you want the eternal kind of life the Bible talks about, you have to have faith in Christ Jesus, as Paul said. You've got to have faith in the blood that He shed for your sins. And that's where Paul was going with this argument. <laughs> but before he got there, he made another point in verse 29 in your Bible. In verse 29, he says, For as much, he gets to the point, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Paul's point is a simple one. He says, if we're God's offspring, and offspring tend to look like their fathers, why would anybody think that God is a graven image made of something that is not alive and can't move around? That's his point. And by now... I think Paul has got these Greeks thinking that he might be right. Because after all, he's quoting Greek poets. (laughs) So in verse 30 in your Bible, he moves in for the kill. And he says, And the times of this ignorance are at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now, you know what winking is. Winking at. It's a figure of speech here. It means to, to overlook something or, or ignore it. When a grandfather's uh, babysitting his grandson and that boy does something he knows his parents wouldn't approve of, 
he looks at his grandpa <laughs> to see if his grandpa is going to disapprove of it. And if grandpa winks at him, that's his way of saying, I'm going to overlook it. I'm going to ignore it. And I'm not going to punish it. And that's the meaning of this figure of speech here too. For 2,000 years before that, God overlooked idolatry in the Gentiles. As Paul said in your next reference in Acts 14, verses 15 and 16, he said, God in time past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. He said, well, why would he do that? Why did God let the Gentiles walk in idolatry? Well, grace believers, you know the answer to that. It was because he planned to get the Jews saved and have them tell the Gentiles to repent of their idolatry, right? So God didn't punish idolatry in Gentiles back then. But, you know your Old Testament, you know when the Jews messed with idols, God did punish it. God told Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14, 6, Say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent and turn yourselves from your idols. God didn't suffer the Jews to walk in idolatry, did he? But he let the Gentiles do it until Paul was made an apostle. After the Lord appeared to Paul in a, in a vision on Damascus Road and saved him, Look what Paul said in Acts 26, 19 and 20. He said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I showed the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. And after Paul told these Athenians here to repent, well, he really went for the jugular in the next verse. In verse 31, when he, when he said that they should repent because God has appointed a day in the which he'll judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he's ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men, in that he raised him from the dead. And listen, they knew what man Paul was talking about. Because if you were here last Sunday or if you know this passage, you know earlier in this passage, they heard Paul mention Jesus Christ. Plus, look what it says in Luke 5, 13 and 15. It says the Lord touched this leper here, and immediately the leprosy departed from him, and then what happened? So much the more went there a fame abroad of him. Folks, the news of this tremendous healer in Israel got around the world. And if the Greeks heard about his amazing works, Maybe they heard some of his words, like the words in your last reference there, where the Lord said in John 5:22 and 27, "The Father judgeth no man, 
that hath committed all judgment to the Son because he is the Son of Man. Now you'd think it would be the other way around. You'd think the Father would be the judge. You go to court, you like to see a few gray hairs in the, in the judges. You know, he's got some wisdom. and Men tend to get a little more merciful when they get older and stuff. But God the Father knew that if he judged men, men would say, who are you to judge me? You don't know how hard it was down here. It was pretty hard to say no to sin, you know. Well, they could say that to the Father, couldn't they? But they couldn't say that to the Son. He was tempted to sin, but did not sin. God doesn't judge on the curve like all those merciful teachers you had in school. (laughs) But even if he did, Jesus Christ ruined the curve when he got a hundred percent on the test of life. But if the Athenians, if the Athenians heard that this miracle said he would judge the world, they probably would have believed him because he was able to do all these miracles. But then when they also heard he'd been killed, they would have thought, well, that's that. I guess we're not going to be judged. But when God raised him from the dead, that verse in verse 31 says he gave assurance to all men that the judge of the world is still alive. But instead of striking the fear of God in the hearts of the Athenians like he'd hoped, what's it say in verse 32? When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, "Uh, we'll hear thee again of this matter sometime. Some of them ridiculed him for believing in the resurrection of the dead and the rest... Shined him on, is the way we would say it today. They'd never seen anybody rise from the dead, so they didn't believe it was possible. But Paul did manage to snag a few of them, didn't he? In verse 32, uh, verse 33, it says, So Paul departed from among them. How be it? Certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius, the Areopagite, apparently a famous, fairly well-known guy. That's why he's mentioned here. And a woman named Daenerys and others with them. And if you're glad you're among the few that believe and got saved today, say Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Apostles' courage in the face of the, the, the mighty gathering of the mighty philosophers of men. Greece was known as the center of knowledge and wisdom in the world, and Athens was the capital. And there he stood between the greatest thinkers, so-called in the world and didn't flinch. He knew 
knew he had nothing to fear from the philosophies of men. He knew he had nothing to fear from the wisdom of men. And he faithfully preached Jesus and the resurrection. Because he knows, he knew what we should know, that it's the answer to everything the world devises. Everything the world would rather have you put your faith in instead. Christ is the answer. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we might have just a pinch of His courage. And we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.